for Season 2, Episode 4 guest joining us for another Power of Three conversation is Oceanside High School Class of 76 graduate Dennis Freed. Dennis continued along his educational path as an undergraduate student at the University of Rhode Island. Dennis's career began with a brief stint as a structural engineer, followed by his work as a member of the construction management and development profession. Prior to forming his own consulting company, Dennis served as an executive VP at Maclow Development. He was also vice president of development and construction at the Lighthouse Group and was principal in charge at the Land at Lease Corporation. Throughout his career, Dennis has been involved in every aspect of the development and construction business and takes a hands-on approach to all projects. He has been at the forefront of creativity innovation, including, but not limited to, the implementation of the first four building envelope cocoons and lifting platforms, the creation of the first modern exposed concrete residential buildings, and a scheduling matrix system he created, which provides detailed and accurate indicators of a project's performance, something that has become an industry standard. In 2016, Dennis published a book titled Love, Loss, and Awakening. The book covers the period of time when Dennis was the primary caregiver for his wife Hope, who passed of cancer. He writes of the tribulations dealing with his pain and anguish. The book continues through his quest to find a new soulmate, which he does, his new wife, Lisa. The old adage spoken of great Broadway shows, I laughed, I cried applies to Dennis's work. His work draws every emotion from the reader. Admiration, empathy, sadness, humor, reflection, and hope. I have never read, nor will I ever read, a more honest book. Dennis writes of his experiences as very few would dare. You'll find this podcast emotional and thought-provoking. Listen and enjoy. This is Power of Three, Season 2, Episode 4, with very special guest, Dennis P. Freed. Dennis, we welcome you to our podcast. We're sitting here today with three 1976 graduates of Oceanside High School. Seems like just yesterday we were playing Alamo in the junior high gym. (laughs) That was so much fun. (laughs) I used to cut class for that. Thank you guys for inviting me. It's our pleasure, Dennis. Shh, don't tell any of my teachers I cut class. <laughs> we hope some of them will be listening. I don't know how many, but we hope some of them will be listening. Dennis, we thought it would be uh, an appropriate way for us to begin by sharing the following quote. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. Those words are attributed to Martin Luther King, Jr., and in light of the fact that we just celebrated Martin Luther King Day this past Monday, we thought it'd be an appropriate quote to share, given the, the topic that we're going to be covering today during our podcast with you. So again, welcome. Thank you. Dennis, we think that the uh, most appropriate place to begin would be to talk about your, your professional career. After you graduated from high school and college, talk a little bit about your career and what led to the success that you achieved during your career. Um, I think one of the biggest 
things that led to my success were my parents' values of perseverance, not giving up. You know, I wasn't the best student in the world, but they always told me to get through things. Engineering school was brutal, and they said, just get out, persevere. And I think the second thing uh, was growing up in Oceanside. You know, our parents, we left the house at 8, 9 in the morning, didn't come home until 6, and went through tons of adventures with our friends, especially, you know, pre-junior high, where you really learned to be very self-sufficient. Uh, got into tons of trouble. Parents <laughs> never knew. Got into circumstances parents never knew. And we just learned how to get out of them. I mean, like, one of them is... We broke into the hot waters at Loco. <laughs> and we got into the weeds and into mud up to our waists. And uh, and I'll never forget, it was Gary Woodmer, Gary DiBenedetto, his brother, um, Chris DiBenedetto, me, and one or two other guys. And we got out. So perseverance and certainly the life that we experienced growing up in Oceanside were part of the success that you enjoyed and experienced in your career. One of the things I'd like to uh, touch base on was the creative innovations that really marked many of the projects that you were part of. Can you talk a little bit about what creativity and what those innovations were that were part of your career? The thing I'm most proud about is um, death used to be a very big fact of my business. I've actually had 11 people die in the jobs I've been on. Uh, first one was in 1981. A good friend of mine uh, fell off a building 40 stories. All those deaths you're talking about are jobs I worked during on. their during the construction during the construction, you, okay. and that was just the jobs I was on. And um, I had a death somewhere in the early '90s, uh, sorry, early 2000s. And myself, my company decided to do something about it. I spearheaded it, and uh, uh, my group is responsible for a good chunk of all the concrete safety in New York. Uh, we did the first four buildings with the cocoons or surrounded. We see all the buildings enveloped in these shrouds at the top of the building we built in concrete. So that is probably the most, uh, one of my most proudest contribution to the city is, con is construction safety in New York. Mm -hmm. um, second one is, is um, the, I was a big proponent of women in construction. And I helped foster a lot of women uh, get into the construction business and become high-level executives. A couple of the women that work for me actually have gone on to phenomenal careers as developers, construction executives. Um, they were just great multitasks, taskers, and uh, I, you know that's. And then um, something else which I'm real proud of is there was an article I believe in CNN which I saw a couple of years ago. Um, I construction engineered with my group the first two sliver buildings in the world. They named those two, which are, you know, buildings that are 50 feet wide and 60, you know, 600, 800, 1,000 feet tall. Mm -hmm. I had done the first two. Um, and then a whole bunch of host other uh, innovations, uh, exterior concrete buildings, being able to build them uh, inexpensively and uh, uh, um, properly. If a person's listening right now would like to know around here a building that you were instrumental in constructing, what would be an example of that? Oh, I've had a good career. <laughs> uh, Guggenheim Museum, I was in charge of a renovation back in 91. Uh, we talked about St. John's Law Library. Right. 
157, which is the first building to go up in the uh, first one of the buildings on 57th Street, one of those sliver buildings. Um, one wall I did all the construction engineering for, which is not done yet, but it's a major uh, monument. Mm-hmm. Um, numerous others. So Dennis, we're wondering, um, you talked about a number of things that attributed to the, or contributed to the success that you experienced throughout your career. Uh, can you t- share with us, were there any examples, are there any examples of how your professional life may have helped you in your personal life or the other way around? Are there aspects of your personal life that contributed to the success professionally? Are there any examples that you can share with us? Uh, one of them that comes right to mind is uh, I've been playing ice hockey. First uh, outside ice, uh, high school hockey team back in 71, played at Grand Park. And you guys won the championship, if I remember. Uh, we, came in, we came in first. We lost the championship uh, to Baldwin. Okay. So we were upset, but uh, coach was mad. But uh, Oceanside's <laughs> done great recently. Sal Lavori in the goal. Yes, Sal in the goal. <laughs> You know, and uh, Bobby was our captain. Bobby Giulio. So anyway, um, I coached ice hockey back in the early 90s and just was not happy with the coaching. So a friend of mine said, why don't you open up an internet site? I'm like, what's the internet? So I opened up an internet site. I, I was a programmer through engineering school. So I did my own programming on the end. Uh, my site ended up becoming the number one ice hockey site in the world to teach ice hockey. And the four-time Olympic captain of Finland, who also was very big in uh, international hockey, contacted me, as long as his uh, friend in Canada, Tom Malloy. They're like, we like what you got on there. Can we participate? So I personally got taught European hockey before it was even introduced to America. Um, their methodologies of of free form, free thinking, everybody being able to switch positions. And um, I was able to make really thinking teams. And I go, wait, let me put this into business. So where people would have silos, you're a super, you do this, you do that. I started making, bringing these kids up from, I would hire them uh, as interns and they would end up come working with me. And I would end up, having them um, being able to do every job. So I didn't have these these silos anymore. People were able to multitask, and I was able to bring construction costs down and efficiencies up. And when things got slow, I didn't have to lay you off because there's no more super's jobs. I'd put you as a project manager. And, and uh, that's how my personal life, you know, coaching life helped me in business. Um, is there any example you can share about it being the other way around? Anything from your professional life that may have helped you get through really what we're going to be talking about during the course of our podcast? Um, yeah, I, you know, my kids used to say to me, you know, Dad, you, you know, you probably treat your work as better than you treat us. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I learned to take some of my business uh, acumen and and politics that you have to do in business to to get ahead to work in a huge international organization or with you know major developers around the world and um you know i started using some of those principles at home too to resolve problems and 
you know, instead of being so reactive, being more, you know, uh, proactive and, you know, plus my wife and I, we both learned to settle arguments a lot easier, but a good mm -hmm. chunk of it was also from work. Mm -hmm. um, that's it. So let's move into the book then. Um, I don't think I've ever read a more honest book and you expose your ways that many people would never dare to. Um, we should oh, mention the, the book Love, the book, Loss, and Awakening, Misadventures on the Way Back to Joy. Right, which is a story of Dennis's um, period of uh, working through the death of his wife, Hope, and um, that period of time and the period of time directly after that in the, uh, the, the recovery uh, period, to use that word. Um, but um, Rich, can I just sure? You know, I have a screenwriter right now. I'm working with them on a um, on a uh, TV pilot. And uh, after he read the book, he said, "Actually, this is a book of life, not death, not of grieving." Right. He says it shows you how to get through tragedy. So I like to look at it as a positive way that it's a book of life and learning and learning how to get through adversity. Right. There's I wish I could just spend a lot of this podcast just talking about what I got out of the book and what it can do for different people. Um, but it definitely is a book that should be, I think, required reading for not only uh, people that are grieving the loss of a spouse, but also people who are married and need, need to reflect a little bit about what's important in their life and in their marriage. Um, and I'm sure we could probably speak though also the whole you know long time about hope um but in order to give the listeners who never knew her an image to go by in this podcast uh would you please uh describe her as a wife a mother a person for us and for the listeners oh um i'm sure a lot of ocean size are going to be listening this is uh, hope shergan um she um was she knew how to bring smiles and joy and make you feel good. She just, you know, she was a good compliment to me, me, this driving engineer, business guy, and she, this soft-spoken, just made you feel good about everything person. And I, I always remember her with a smile. She was. Right. She was. She was, a, she always was able to make things look rosy, not, you know, mm -hmm. just, and um, she was one of those people in school that was never a good student and just channeled you know, oh, you know, you're just going to be a dental assistant, even though there's nothing wrong with being a dental assistant, please, you know, right. you know, just, uh, you know, never to be, you know, anything of any, um, I'm trying to pick words properly, but uh, my mother got her into becoming a teacher, and she decided to make sure no student ever got left behind that left her. She was a kindergarten teacher, and you'd be surprised how much... Uh, um, how much uh, a kindergarten teacher can affect your career going, you know, your learning career going forward. You, you know, and, I'm sorry, but you talked about being innovative in the work that you did as an engineer. If I remember correctly, Hope was innovative also in, in how she taught. Some of the things that she did for her kids were innovative. How they learned to paint. Oh, she had them lie in their backs, and she put paper underneath the desks and had them lie in the backs like they were Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel. Mm -hmm. And she would go through the whole thing of, you know, 
uh, uh, you know, Michelangelo and teach history with that, or right. teach, Jackson do Jason Pollock. Jackson Pollock and have yeah. them throw paint on. Right. You know, uh, this is all in the book. You know, uh, you know, for uh, Valentine's Day, she would get a cow's heart, and kindergartners mm-hmm. would dissect wow. the cow's heart, and she would explain that, and and just you know, you know, Dr. Seuss Day, her and Laurie would come in and dress like Dr. Seuss on rollerblades and roller <laughs> skates, and. And, you know, teach those fun. And uh, she was constantly challenging the kids. She didn't want any kid to leave school, her class, without some type of positive outlook on learning. She was also a teacher of um, professional development classes. And I do remember one, I don't know why I got there a half hour early, but I did. And I helped her lighting the candles, setting the mood with the music. Um, and that was a big thing, which... As teachers, we know the environment that you teach in is so important in, in what you're going to impart to whoever's listening. So she was a spiritual person too, right? Well, before she even got cancer, we started to go to both go down the spiritual path. Not religious, spiritual. Um, she would do the soft stuff, and I would do the scientific stuff. Like I got really into string theory and quantum theory, how that re- relates to spirituality and we would share and we go to Sedona and places like that and um, she felt her calling was to share mindfulness which is now a they they use another word for it mindfulness is mindfulness and it's actually a big program in our high school in the last couple of years it's it's made a resurgence right yeah 20 years ago she had kindergartens doing qigong they were doing (laughs) qigong and tai chi in class they were doing little bits of meditation uh, I think it was 15, 20 years ago that she brought that into the classroom. And uh, that was an area that we were exploring. And then she found out how to do that to help her. I mean, she stayed alive for seven and a half years with stage four ovarian cancer. Three major operations that just took everything, put it on the table, put it back. And a good chunk of it was her integrated medicine. Mount Sinai named the mm-hmm. uh, uh, gynecological integrated medicine family area after her oh, for wow. her contribution to that um so yeah she was a pioneer in that area if she had lived i think she really would have dennis when you were lot. i'm sorry but when you were in school when you were working uh throughout your marriage did you ever consider yourself a writer an author oh no <laughs> But, the but only thing I only thing I wrote was letters in business that were usually weren't too so positive. So what was what was the process then, or what was the impetus to to begin this uh, writing experience? Well, I was a wreck when Hope died. I, you know, suicide was always a, you know, my if it wasn't for my kids, not sure I'd be here. And uh, I was bloated, gained tons of weight, drinking. And uh, my social worker said, you know, you got to change or you're dead. You're dead very soon. You're going to be. And, you know, I I looked at my boys and I go, I know, I got to be there for them. And she was my rudder. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a businessman and, you know, those guys don't always know Ackerman. And she would always be my rudder. And uh, my social worker, Betty Krausen, who I love, still speak to her. Uh, said to me, uh, why don't you start writing, getting all your grief out? And uh, and she goes, just put it on paper. So I started writing. You know, I'm a creative person. You know, I have uh, 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 
I minored in, in art, not, you know, not a real minor, but, you know, I took a lot of art classes in college and very creative. I'm a hobbyist. And I started writing, and I started writing like I was talking to the guys in, in construction. You know, we were storytellers. Mm -hmm. Construction mm -hmm. guys are storytellers. And uh, especially when you got those big heroes and you're talking over lunch, you know, just <laughs> like the stereotypical thing and everybody's, you know, boasting about whatever. And... Um, People, I started sharing it. People were like, wow, this is really good. Let's start, you know, you should really develop this into a book. And that's how it started. So, Dennis, the, the words flowed for you. It wasn't something where you were, you know, dragging along and, and, and kind of plowing your way through it. It's something that came naturally and easily, that process. Extremely. In fact, I'd ride on the subway a lot, and I would just get off the subway at my stop and just sit on the bench and just continue riding. Um, the book is beautifully written too. Um, it's not just the emotions that you gain from your story. It's written very well too. Did you have any writing mentors or was that innate? Well, it's a leading question because we had a discussion about Mrs. <laughs> oh, Garnick. Dennis, you weren't <laughs> supposed to say that. <laughs> uh, Mrs. You know, I had a couple of teachers in high school that uh, really prepared me in life. And one of them was Mrs. Garnick. And myself. I loved her too. Yeah, she was, and she helped me with my writing. In fact, she became a uh, spec writer for Parsons Bringerhoff, a, a big engineering firm, and she helped me with my business writing. We met years later, and she mentored me in business writing, so I can write concise letters um, in business. Because that's an amazing thing to, to me also about the book, is that it's so powerful, it evokes so many different emotions, and it's concise at the same time. And a, as, we, as we've talked about, Richie and I have talked about this, all those things that Richie just mentioned, but it's honest. You, you really dig deep and you bring out a lot in a very honest and truthful way about your very personal life and your experience with hope before, during, and after Which her passing. The question I have based on the honesty is, um, did you have any, did you share the book with your family as you were writing it? And did you have any... Any pushback, like maybe the kids saying, Dad, that might be a little too personal to put in the book? Um, how did that work? Well, before you get into that, the uh, the honesty part came from a uh, thing I've uh, read from Sting, which said, uh, if you don't put your life, a true artist puts his life on the line for the world to dissect, or I forget you know exact mm -hmm. words, but basically you throw your life out there for the world. Mm -hmm. um, I also had a couple of editors that, Help me get through different portions of it to really bring out the conciseness of it. And once they showed me the methodologies, I was able to do it, you know, better. And I had a full-time editor, you know, help me with the book at the end. You have to. Mm -hmm. um, and then the the question to you is, um, what was it? Again? The question was within your family. Were oh, you sharing yeah. the book? No, absolutely as you went not. Along? And but then when you did, so did you share it before it was published? Though I think I might have shared a little bit, and my kids were going through a very tough time, extremely mm -hmm. tough, and they didn't want to see it. So it, see. have they read it since? I'm what, sure. What I had people help me with was I would run it by people of different ages at work, especially that chapter ego penis. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget this 26-year-old. I didn't know if I wanted to put it in there or not. This 26-year-old woman just turns to me and goes, own it, Dennis. Own it. Put it in there. you got to put it in there. It means a lot. Mm -hmm. 
So, uh, yes, I ran it by different people for feedback. In fact, I wrote the book a second time because of feedback, mm-hmm. which I've won a couple of awards since uh, the second writing because right. of feedback. So. And so once, the, once, let's say, your boys read the book, um, I mean, it, it must have been hard for them on so many different levels, but was there any pushback to you like, Dad, what, you didn't have to put that in the book? No, no, I haven't, I haven't gotten any pushback from right. my boys. Good. In fact, when people say, boy, you were honest, I go, yeah, my mom read it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, no, I've gotten pretty much praise from everybody to you know, reveal what's going on. Um, what 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 you go through? I mm-hmm. mean, you take the chapter to boardwalk. I wrote that some of the second writing. I never get some woman uh, wrote in. Uh, it's on Amazon, I believe. That some woman goes, you know, how can you uh, write like this? You know, and, and how, I mean, how could you date so soon? You know, and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And I decided to write the boardwalk. That you know, most people don't know. Caregivers are alone years before their spouse dies. You know, mm-hmm. I have a friend, I won't mention name, his wife's not, uh, has not passed yet, but uh, she's basically, you know, she has Alzheimer's and he's my age and she's had it for about 10 years and he's now dating another woman, his kids mm-hmm. accept it because she's no longer, you know, so caregivers for years just go with celibacy and just really, you know, the the caregiver is basically sometimes becoming more of a a mother and a father than a, than a spouse, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's tough. You mentioned before the role the, the social worker played in, in your experiences. Uh, at what point did you begin working with a social worker? Um, Hope, it was actually Hope's social worker first. Mm-hmm. We were having some marital issues like Everybody does, you know, it's hard mm-hmm. to be married. You know, it takes a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> As in my book says, you know, this woman said to me, every great relationship has that day that they decide to stay together or leave. And um, Hope found this woman, she had to do some her own self-awareness also. So that's how I found the social worker through Hope. Before Hope was diagnosed? Before Hope was diagnosed. Yeah, I believe so. I'm, I'm not sure of the timeline, mm-hmm. but I believe so. Or maybe it was just around that time. Mm-hmm. But uh, Dennis, also, you know, you talk about a social worker. You talk about your parents, your 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 boys. Uh, everybody needs uh, support, a support system. Were there others who were part of your support system that provided input that helped you to get through before um, Hope passed, and and then after she passed? It's it's a good question. You raise that. We were very lucky. We had a great support system. We had uh, my parents. Her parents were both Oceansiders. We lived near to each other. We had my boys. In fact, one year I paid my son Evan not to go to work for the summer. I said, listen, Ev, I need help at home. Hope was really sick that summer. And I said, Ev, I'll pay you to stay home and take care of mom. And he goes, no problem. Um, my boys. How old was he at the time? He was probably about 17, 18. Mm-hmm. Um you know, Ryan was 15, 14 when it first hit, and he was basically alone. Today, I don't know if it would happen if I did this, but he was alone for like two or three months, you know, taking care of the house, the dogs, while we were in the hospital most of the time. Uh, Evan was in college, you know, he was 16. And um, we had a great support network. Her friends real chipped in. My sister-in-law, oh, I love Sue. Sue Sherrigan, everybody knows mm-hmm. her, listening. 
Um, she was a big, her and Jeff were big supporters. Uh, Gail, Gail, um, um, I can't think of it as now. Gail right now, uh, uh, Fish, everybody mm-hmm. was a big support. So we, we had a good support system, but there's a lot of people that don't. Uh, Hope and I became very active in something called Woman to Woman in Mount Sinai. Now it's spread throughout the country where women with gynecological diseases now get support through woman to woman if they're alone. It means a lot, just even being able to be picked up and go for your chemo treatments. Mm -hmm. So uh, we helped uh, fundraise for that organization. used to run a couple of them. Um, But supports everything to people trying to survive these diseases, and a lot of people just don't get it. Mm -hmm. So if you know somebody that's going through this, just say, can I drive you? Can they I help you? They can make all the difference. Oh, oh yeah. Just even one driving of somebody or just even going shopping for them or picking up milk for them. Just, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Dennis, communication is vitally important in any relationship. Um, but during Hope's illness, uh, you were garnering support for, through the family, outside the family. But I know you as a caregiver were, were there for her and communicating to her that you know you were doing everything that you can for her along with her team of doctors something tells me that hope communicated to you as well about you know how you were providing support for her but what you needed to do for yourself as well is that an accurate assessment of of the communication that took place between her and you sometimes yes sometimes no uh, people struggling to survive sometimes become very um self-centered mm-hmm. You can understand it. You know, mm-hmm. you can't place judgment on it that they want to live. Right. So, yes, at times, but I'd also say at times, no. They, mm-hmm. you know, did not understand what, uh, she did not understand what I was going through. Mm-hmm. And uh, judgment was clouded, and that's just the life of a caregiver, just knowing. That's why I say you become a parent sometimes more than a husband or a wife. Right. Because you got to put them first over you and... You're suffering before. I don't forget my social word. Betty said to me, even before Hope died, uh, about five months before, four months before Hope died, when Hope was in the hospital on and off and critical, and Betty just turned to me and says, Dennis, you know, you're going to be dead before Hope. You better start taking care of yourself. I got to do this. And you know, Dennis, get out of here. You got to take care of yourself. You're dead. You're dead within a week or two. So, yeah. So... Not always. Mm-hmm. And the care, good caregiver has to know when to say, guys, I need to get away. Got to get something. But uh, you, I'm sure you recognized things that may have been communicated by her to you, where it was coming from and why it was said the way it was said. Of course. Yeah. You, you, you know, you definitely listen. It, in my book, I mentioned this, that uh, the last week or two between Hope and I was not very good. And uh, to this day, it just bothers me, but... She was bitter. She was dying, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I could have that week or two back where we could just sit and hug each other and talk. But um, she was bitter. Very, she wanted to live. Really did. And, you know, sad part was is that we put, um, we had just, you know, Ryan was graduating college. We had saved and, you know, getting through marriage is tough. Money's a tough part. You know, we put mm-hmm. money away. We didn't go on vacations. And now the fruit of the world was there for me and not for her. Mm-hmm. And um, talking about that reminds me of your chapter, Home, where um, you speak about many things. And again, back to the brutal honesty, 
when people would write a chapter about home, you know, what maybe people would think about is fuzzy slippers in front of a fireplace and uh, drinking hot cocoa. And you decided to write um, the chapter um, as some of the regrets that you did have. And like I said before about required reading, I feel like that's very, very helpful for people to read um, as a as a married man. You know, it, it you you re, I read that and I reflect, and you know that's part of the reason why I thought that the book it really should be some type of required reading for anybody who's married, uh, regardless. You'll speak to you know I, I'm communicate with a lot of widow widowers, including divorced people. I counsel them a lot too, and. Um, uh, second time around, if you want it to work, you know, 70% of divorcees uh, get divorced the second time. I don't know if you know, it's just like somewhere around there. But if you want to correct um, yourself, you know, the second time around, I'm trying not to make these same mistakes with Lisa, my mm-hmm. new partner. I love her. She's great. And, uh, um, yeah, you look, it- back, you look back at stuff. You're like, you know, in, in there... Uh, you know, I say uh, I'll let Humpty Dumpty fall off the wall and tell you what home really is about. Right. And uh, I won't play. I still play ice hockey at sixty-one, and I mm-hmm. won't play on weekends. Mm-hmm. I will not. Mm-hmm. I, I could. I wish I could take back fifteen years of Friday nights. I mean, that's why Sundays. Any, anybody reading that book, like myself, reading that chapter alone, you reflect and you you say to yourself, "Yeah, I I should be spending more time with my spouse in a quality way." and instead of like running around thinking other things are more important, you know? So I think your book is, it's so many things, but that in that one situation, I think it's very helpful uh, for a, a married person to read. You know, you know I, I, I want to do a follow-up book. Maybe I'm giving a little bit away now, but... Um, You're teasing the audience. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like so many guys complain about you know, sex, you know, having, mm-hmm. you know, you know, uh, mar- marital relationships. And I look at them, I go, it's your fault. They mm-hmm. look at me and I go, well, guess what? You know, if you turn the TV off on Sundays for football and you give it to your wife, you don't play golf, you know, two to two times on a weekend, you play once or don't play at all. You know, um, you know, Hope and I had a very good, good, good relationship with life, but it always could be better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I look back at it, you know, like me, it was computer games, you know. Mm-hmm. I wish I would have turned them off sometimes and mm-hmm. gone to bed at 9 o'clock or, or seen I love, I used to love I Love Lucy. You know, go watch I Love Lucy with her 8 mm-hmm. o'clock, 8.30 at night. Right. And that's what I do with Lisa now, you know. Mm-hmm. I, you know, TV goes off, computer games go off, you know, or what do you want to watch? And, right. and I give her more of her instead of my, me or even a compromise of me. Mm-hmm. You know, I give, want to do more for her than, you know, and, right. and with that love just comes so abundant. Uh, it's, a, it's such an easy thing, you know. I, you know so. Lisa has become a part of your, your support system. Oh, she's great. We have five kids amongst us. I got two, she has three, and love her kids. Mm-hmm. And um, we, you know, we're, we're, we're bringing families together. It's, it's mm-hmm. a tough thing to do as they're older. Um, much tougher. Um, but I love her. She's great. And we have so much in common and, uh, we're forging a life together and it, and it's, and it's tougher this, you know, at least I'm finding this and I actually, I've talked to a lot of friends too. It's tougher the second time around because you got, 
so many things that are already ingrained in you, mm-hmm. ways of doing things that, you know, when you first get married, you're 20, we got married at 21, you know, you know, people today are getting married later, so maybe they get the same hardships where, but when we got married at 21, what did we know? You know, we formed a life together. We formed right. everything together. Mm-hmm. And it was easy. I'm not going to say, you know, we didn't fight, you know, mm-hmm. but when you get a relationship second time in life, you know, you have your set ways and you got to get through them and the navigation's much, is very tough for the first couple of years versus when you first get together because, you know, you know, there's a lot, a lot of things not clouding it, like money and the kids and 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 your wants and mm-hmm. and your road to finding your new love, Lisa, was uh, an interesting path too. Oh, it's in the book. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all has to do with me learning to kiss again. <laughs> yeah, Whatever it, it takes. <laughs> oh, when I started dating, you know, after. 31 years with hope. Oh my God. I was like, <laughs> like 12 year old again. Right. I had no idea what was out there, what it was like and saying the wrong things and stolen the book. <laughs> yeah. It's enjoyable in the book. And it's your book has been very well reviewed or received. And uh, some of the things that I came across were poignant, cuttingly insightful, restorative and inspirational and unafraid to express emotion, which is what Richie and I talked about at the top of this podcast, about the honesty. That quote seems to speak uh, to communication and honesty, uh, specifically in the context of introspection. And I'm sure that you've gone through that introspection, you know, in an ongoing way over the last however many years. Um, Is there something that you've learned about yourself through your writing or did you know this about yourself, about the, the power of introspection and the power of writing? Is that something you always knew, or did that, did that evolve over time for you? No, I've always been one of these people that, you know, tear yourself apart. <laughs> you know, always, mm-hmm. always trying to make myself better. Um, and uh, so that's, that's, you know, that's, that's one thing. But um, the book, definitely writing it, and this new road is... Uh, making me think more about so anyway going back to introspective yes the book has helped me become more introspective in in more about enjoying life and not just you know i guess this also happens as you get older not to identify yourself by your business anymore you know it's a tough thing when you're a business person I know other people going through it. I constantly, you know, you know. Well, other people define you by what you do in many ways, you know, especially when you're successful like yourself. You know, know, that's the American way. I I read an article about that, that America puts a lot of emphasis on your business acumen and what you do. And even your social classes, who you hang out with, who you do, who you you socialize with, who you uh, talk to, where you are in your business and economics. And uh, Lisa and I are big hikers, and we hike Europe, where that is not the norm. I mean, you go hiking in Europe, and nobody asks what you do for a living. You may right. be with them for a whole day or two, and mm-hmm. you have no idea what people do for a living. Right. And they could fool you. you know, and, and afterwards, you learn. I've met some very you know, wealthy and, 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 and accomplished people, but you went and learned for like two or three days, and right. you're in the same group with people that you know, you know, have all different economic striations. Here it might be the first question or second question you ask a person, right, when you first meet them. Exactly. What do you do? And then all of a sudden you start summing up that person. Oh, he's this, he's that, you know. Making assumptions and judgments. Yeah, and oh, I can't 
be seen with him because he does. You know, <laughs> come on. You know, I'm. You know, come on. You know, from golf right. courses on down. Right. And uh, that was one of the biggest things I've learned after Hope died was learn. You know, to take life a lot more simpler. Uh, it's been tough for me at work because mm-hmm. people at work just you know still like. I'm in business. My niche is private developers, and it's a tough business. Right. Tough business. I, I, I'm just reminded, though, Dennis, which I'll share. It's sort of a tangent, but it may be a tough business, but you have really made a name for yourself, and Richie and I had a chance to see that firsthand. We met for dinner about a month and a half ago on Northern Boulevard in Great Neck at an Italian restaurant. I can't remember the name of the restaurant, but we were sitting there having a conversation, the three of us, when we saw a gentleman from the table next to us looking over, and he kept looking at you, and we all became like aware he was looking of it. at a movie star. Yeah, <laughs> it, he was like mesmerized and focused on you, and he wouldn't take his eyes off of you until at one point he came over. And well, you are very cute, you know. <laughs> do, do you remember the conversation that he? I'm sure you do. Sure and I, I bring do. it up for a reason to talk about the impact that you've made on on others mm-hmm. in your professional life. I'm glad you brought that up because this is something for our class because we're all going through this at our age. Mm-hmm. That so I was considered uh, I don't want to I hate you know boasting whatever but I was considered in the top two or three builders in New York City, which means the world back mm-hmm. back in the seventies, mid eighties, nineties. I never had to look for a job as far as you know get work. I had to turn work away in, in the 2000s. After 2008, on 2010, I had six new projects where everybody, you know, was suffering. So my teams are really good. I, I owe everything to my teams and my people dedicated. Um, so I was known as the guru, you know, and people would look up to me to, to make their financial dreams reality. And uh, it, it builds your ego up tremendously, tremendously. And it's almost like a it's almost like a, 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 a Hollywood movie star, but I, again, I know a couple of relatives, I know people I know that are now going through the same thing I went through two three years ago, because I left the business when Hope died. As far as you know, I just walked away. Um, for, I, for self salvation, I had to take months off. Mm-hmm. And once you stop buying and becoming the mogul. People don't even ask you for a cup of coffee. And you get that total letdown of, of being on top to almost nothing because you're not giving money out. You're not, you're not giving business right. out. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting. I, I had lunch with a friend the other day, and uh, he's still in the business, still one of the best moguls. And he's like, you know, Dennis, you're the first guy to ask me to lunch in six months. I'm like, what? I can't say his name. I said, what? He goes, yeah, you know, I, I don't give work out anymore. But, but I said, you're still in the business. He goes, but I'm not giving work out. You know, he goes, I have my guys do it. So, yes, you know, I heard that guy look at me. I saw that guy look at me and, you know, and what he said. It should be noted that he hasn't seen you. You haven't seen well, him. Right I haven't too, seen yeah. him in 15, in 15 years. years. Uh, actually, I should say the last time I saw him was 2007 or eight. And his building was falling apart from the recession, 2008. Um, and we actually helped them get out of it financially. Um, they were very honorable developers. They said, if you help us get out this financially, make sure you guys won't lose money. And we did. And he came over and he gave you a hug. 
Yeah. When he yeah. greeted you after however many years, you made quite the impression. Yeah. We, yeah my team's helped a lot of developers. Mm-hmm. So help people save their fortunes or make fortunes. You know, but when you're no longer on top, you're no longer on top. Sneak back to the book for a second. Um, it drew every emotion out of me, admiration, empathy, sadness, humor, reflection, appreciation, hope. And uh, it obviously moved many people like that. Um, what literary organizations recognized your book as being a great book? Um, I'm sure it's won a couple of awards at least. So you want to talk about that? It's won some minor, like the National book is uh, national author uh, independent authors that's that's a prestigious one it's one of a couple of others mm-hmm. the way the book business works that if you don't have a major publisher the new york times or wall street journal won't won't uh-huh. it won't review you it's very tough to get into that high-end niche of reviews mm-hmm. so i had harville Hendricks reviewed it mm-hmm. and he's one of the most famous uh, relationship coaches in the world maybe the most famous you know, he's Oprah's second uh, love besides her husband. Uh-huh. Right, he's been on there more. So, you know, I've had some pretty dignified people review it and, and give positive note. And I've held back from getting an agent to get me that because I'm still am holding on to my rights because the minute you get an agent, you get all this, you give up all your rights. So um, I've had, you know, I've won three awards, but nothing you'd say like the Pulitzer or something, you know, right. nothing of that nature. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but in, it's, it's independent awards, I've gotten some very good independent awards. Right. I mean, it, it is that level that it's award worthy. How about um, the English one? I was really proud of. I was mm-hmm. even though I didn't win, they only give out four every year, four or six. And it's to every John you can think of. Mm-hmm. Uh, he put me up right behind the winners. Right. And uh, he him and his group really loved the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really curious. um as to feedback, after reading the book, it's you know I I can almost guess what people are saying uh, with feedback because it, it is that good. What about feedback though? I'm really curious about the feedback from any um, married couples who read the book because from my own reaction, um, I'm wondering about what they might say to you or ask you or what kind of feedback you get from them. Um. I don't know. It's been all over the place. You know, right. most, you know, it's, it's a lot of times people don't know what to say because it's so honest. Right. You know, um, people close to me have talked to me about, you know, the different chapters that mean a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I they just stay, you know, they qu- say it's a powerful book. Right. You know, well, they, my don't, they don't get comes, into details. They just say it's really powerful. Right. It really, really makes us think. Right. I've had a couple of people say, you know, they couldn't finish it because it really made them think too much. Mm-hmm. Um, because I see it as like I've said this already, but I see it as something that can help a married couple. Um, it just puts so many different areas of your life in perspective. The book, and that's why I was curious. I mean, obviously, people who are going through situation like you um, have one look uh, outlook of the book, and then I would think that people who are married, um, it, it's helpful to them, you know. Uh, and that's why I was curious about that question. Oh yeah, they definitely. I've yeah, I've had a lot of married couples talk to me say, "Yeah, this is great," and mm-hmm. they're introspective on it, but they they don't go into any detail. But mm-hmm. yes. But as Richie said, and I agree that it it could be or should be required reading for any couple, 
Um, one of the things that you refer to as one of your taglines um, is love is not a journey, but an adventure. And that's something that all of us can, can uh, think about and connect to our own relationships that we're in. So. Yeah, I, 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 that line took me a long time to craft. You know, uh, I believe the end of that goes, you know, to journeys to go from place to base, but to adventures to make wrong turns and to forge a new direction and adventuring is much different than journey. And I looked up the, de uh, the definitions of them. And, you know, love, if you're a widower, widow, divorcee, or if you're in, you know, you're the same marriage, you know, you've been in for either first or second, it's really an adventure because, you know, mm -hmm. every day's changing. And every, you know, I say to everybody, you know, people go, you know, you know, arguments are good in marriage because if you're not, that means somebody's taking advantage of the other person. Mm -hmm. And right there alone, arguments are an adventure. How do you, right. how do you settle that disagreement? And it's an adventure. Right, <laughs> it's a definitely. Yeah. And sometimes there's no settlement, you know, and that's the adventure. Right. But, uh, you know, like my adventure to find Lisa was, was an adventure. And, you know, my cousin said you tackled this like you were an engineer. You know, you wanted to meet a new woman and you put down all the recipes to do it. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, going with that is um, my cousin's niece. Um, my cousin's like my brother. He is my brother. And uh, his niece was looking for a spouse at the same time I was wanted to find a new partner. And we were in Houston and we... Her spouse, her, her niece and I sat that my niece and I sat down and we uh, started writing all the requirements of, of what we want from a spouse. And just for anybody, do not put physical attributes as the first, you know, X items, you know, because like right. Lisa's four or five inches taller than me, you know, uh -huh. and, uh, you know, never, never fit, you know, not fit, but right. never be like what I'd say, okay, this is it. Uh -huh. You know, the first thing I put down was she had to be a really good mother mm -hmm. and her kids really had to love her. Because mm -hmm. I knew if that, if a kids loved her, I said, yeah, that's, a, you know, a person that I would want to be with because, you know, right off the bat. Right. Um, so we wrote our list of requirements. <laughs> so Dennis, you may have said this earlier, but is there a follow-up to your book that we can look forward to? Yeah, I have parts of it written. Actually, I got three books or four books I want to write. Um, so I just got to wait for some time. I consult right now. Mm -hmm. So I got to wait for a little bit of my consulting to wind down to get back into that mode. Mm -hmm. um, and when I get into the writing mode, I will spit the two or three books out. Um, I, I was very interested in your take on spirituality and divinity. Um, and I think that might be something that people... Um, would want to hear about from you, um, your perspectives and how you came about your feelings about what you call divinity. Um, and I went through, went to Temple of Odor to, up until uh, 12th grade, you know, and uh, was reformed but very religious. And then something happened in the temple where Hope and I lost our uh, belief in, in formal religion. Mm -hmm. Um found it to be very contradictory, but I always felt there was a higher power. And that was part of Hope as an I process when we started doing this uh, uh, mindfulness stuff. And um, I know there's a higher power. It guides me in the book. In the book, I talk about it. There's a chapter called Against the Gods based upon Bernstein's statistical work about when something is either 
divinity or just pure chance. Um, but I definitely know there's this higher power. Me being an engineer, um, I've broken it down into two things. It's either string theory and quantum theory, M theory, or it's, it's an omnipotent power. You know, when I die, I'll come back and tell you what it is. But <laughs> until then, it's, it's one of those two things. But there is right. this force in this universe that just pops in. I mean, in, in the book, I talk about things that in engineering need proof, but uh, right. hope comes down all the time. And, and it's one, not, one of the examples. So certain she is. She's one of the examples that you gave that she did come down was when you, at three o'clock in the morning, you went into the furniture, opened up the drawer that you looked in many times, and you found... Found the string. Found the string, but also, didn't you find a book or her diary? I found and, a diary. And I found, I'm crying, I found things that, you know, I looked, after she died, I tried to grasp at anything, mm-hmm. anything. And I was three o'clock in the morning, I was distraught, something said, go look inside her. She had this little altar, and these things were there that were not there before. Mm-hmm. I mean... Uh, give you another instance this is not in the book um hope had a very favorite piece of jewelry if you see her she always wears it it's, it's an it's an evil eye it was uh, actually designed for chris angel by uh, uh um uh by a uh, kravitz jewelers uh, not bennett but his his uh, his, his wife the necklace yeah the necklace and uh, not his wife his uh, his sister um and uh hope loved it and she had insurance on everything, all her jewelry. Hope loved the jewelry. And she did not, I lost it. And she did not have insurance. She had a list of 10 things. Meanwhile, this is the thing she wore every single day. That was not insured. Because I wanted to have it remade. Mm-hmm. And the cost remake, it was absorbent. Especially because of, of what it took to make the original one. All the molds were broken and everything. And it's like she needed it back. It's how can she not put that on the on mm-hmm. the register where everything else was there? Mm-hmm. Well, it's something that you did talk about in your book, and maybe something that you can revisit in the book that we were all looking forward to. Rich, anything else? No, I'm really looking forward to the next book too. <laughs> I, I, I never thought Love, Loss, and Awakening was a finished book. I have so many chapters that I have half written um, that, I, that I'd like to write and reissue the book. Um, one of them is, a, is called The Christmas Tree, how uh, my wife and I, two Jewish people that grew up in, in, in Long Island, decided to always have a Christmas tree in the house. Um, there's so many other chapters, and I'm going to reissue the book. And besides that, I'm also going to put in uh, an, an after, um, you know, a post to that about uh, relationships after once you meet the love of your life, um, all all the different uh, um, trials you go through, and and uh, it's that's what I'm looking to do. So I will write that book. What kind of a time frame and, and, are we talking about, Dennis? How long is that going to take? Uh, it's probably going to take me about another year to get that mm-hmm. out. So uh, that's that. But another exciting project, which I'm working on right now, is um, a friend of mine put me in touch with one of the uh, top, if not the top food purveyors in the movie business. He read my book and loves it. And we're actually co-producing a TV pilot 
And uh, we started, um, we have a, a really good writer that uh, is hooked in with a whole bunch of producers. If there's a screenplay attached to this project already? Or uh, we've already, I, I've, I've put in numerous hours. We've already, the outline is done. The, the pilot episode is in the midst of being written as we speak. Um, and it should be finished in about uh, two months. Did he, he was knowledgeable, obviously, about the format of a screenplay. I mean, what, what did you bring to that other than the content? Or you're learning about the process of screenwriting. Oh, it's, it's a collaborative effort. It's, I'm being very creative with the writer and we're back and forth. Uh, we laugh, we cry together, we pull each other in different directions. And, um, and it's, I'm basically, you know, we're, we're co-producers, uh, writing this, uh, um, well, with the writer, you know, I'm, I'm co-writing this with him and, uh, it is a very collaborative effort. Mm-hmm. Well, that is something for, uh, those who have read your book. I'm sure that I speak on behalf of them in saying that we are anxiously awaiting the follow-up to your book and to see what comes from the screenplay and that project. So there are a lot of uh, very interesting and exciting things on the horizon for you, Dennis, which you're, you know, we're, we're very happy that things are moving in that direction. And we know that it took a, a very painful experience to get you here at this point in time, but we are very happy that uh, you and Lisa and, and those projects are getting you from this point to a point where you're going to be able to share again with others your experiences. Yeah, and if anybody knows anything about TV pilots, for which I'm learning, it's, it's probably going to be a good year or mm-hmm. so. Uh, the number one thing is you're going to find someone to put up the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars for that pilot. Mm-hmm. So uh, once the screenplay is written, that's going to be the next uh, adventure for Love, Loss, and Awakening. Mm-hmm. And then I will uh, issue that second book. Well, we're, we're looking forward to that. Richie and I want to thank you for, again, being uh, part of our podcast. It's Power of Three, Season 2, Episode 4, with Dennis Freed. Dennis, thank you so much. I'd like to re- remind you, our Power of Three listeners, that you can contribute to the overtime episode by submitting questions or comments to the voice message feature at anchor.fm or our email, rtwtmc at gmail.com. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello is the shampoo that glorifies your hair. So hello. Everybody, hello. I'm trying to fix something here. Hey, you know what? I don't know if I... No, I'll tell you later, but it's pretty cool. So, I'm recording. I'll tell you right now. Quickie. So, I got a message from... I, I there was a there's a show going on in Nebraska. You got a minute, one minute, or you want to go? Uh-uh. You don't have a minute. Not really. Go ahead, go. Don't worry about Actually, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I think. Sorry. No problem. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello is a shampoo that glorifies your hair. 
So hello everybody, hello. Still going? All right, now let's stop.